Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 21, October 2019, Movie Dialects, a conversation with Cameron Meyer. Hello, Paul here with my latest podcast from Paul Meyer Dialect Services and the International Dialects of English Archive. Since we last met, I've been to the Telluride Film Festival. I'll save the details until Cameron joins me in a minute or so. He and I attended the festival together. Also, since last month's podcast, I've been working on a New York revival of The Glass Menagerie, working with Matt D. Regattis, who plays Tom Wingfield. Tom represents, of course, Thomas Lanier Williams, better known as Tennessee Williams. Williams set his play in his hometown, St. Louis, often called the most southerly Yankee city. So with all except Amanda, born in Mississippi, the question is what dialect to give Tom, Laura, and the gentleman caller, all St. Louis born and bred. The definitely non-southern St. Louis sound or a style more like Amanda, the mother, the deep south Scarlett O'Hara sound. I was fascinated to listen again to Tennessee Williams himself from a 1974 interview with Dick Cavett. He tells a colorful story about his landlady in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Listen. Toward the end of the Depression era, and she said uh, that she could make good as a restaurateur if she served lunches for 25 cents. And she said, you can uh, remain a resident here if you will act as waiter and cashier. I said, I have a wonderful slogan for you, meals for a quarter in the quarter. And so I she, get it. she loved that. She loved that. And she had it printed up on little business cards. Uh-huh. And about half an hour before lunchtime, she had me run out on the street and distribute that to tourists, you know. And we did very well uh-huh. for quite a while. For, well, for a month is quite a while, I guess. <laughs> but there was a uh, photographer, it seems to me, on the floor below who gave wild parties at night with outraged the ladies. And one time I came in around midnight and she was uh, eating kettles of water on the stove. And then she was... Yeah, I said, are you cooking at this hour? And she said, oh no. She said, listen to that orgy going on down there. (laughs) And she took the kettles and poured them on the floor and she scalded the guests. That was clever. Some of which were not fully dressed, and they went streaking out into Toulouse Street. (laughs) Then came the paddy wagon. (laughs) We were hauled into night court, and I was a material witness, and I was uh, put under oath to see what I had seen. And they asked me, "Did, uh, did she not pour the hot water through the cracks in the floor? I said, I think it's extremely unlikely any lady would do such a thing. Then by not well, they decided that she had done it. <laughs> so actually, and she lost the case and she threw me out and I went to California. Clip used under fair use, copyright Dick Cavett and ABC. Isn't that an amazing sound? So if you're in New York and want to see a revival of The Glass Menagerie, it runs October 3rd through 20th at Wild Project at 195 East 3rd Street. Please visit the podcast page for this episode of In a Manner of Speaking at paulmeyer.com for more information. 
Time now for Guess That Accent. Last time I played this idea clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. If you guessed India, well done. The subject was born in Madurai, Tamil Nadu, also living in Chennai and Mumbai. Both English and Tamil were his co-first languages. To hear the whole recording, just search for India 3 on Idea. The recording was contributed by Dave Martin, former student of mine way back in 2001. Dave, if you're listening, and wherever you are, I hope you're doing well and still killing them with your stand-up. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? All my life I've been um, dreaming of being a teacher or something like that. But now I've currently been changing my mind because I think there's a lot of things to do apart from being a teacher or a nurse as those were the most important careers long ago. However, things have changed now and there are a lot of opportunities for black people. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Cameron Meyer, my son, my favourite movie critic and also Ideas Executive Editor. Please read more about him by following the links on the page devoted to this episode on the In a Manner of Speaking homepage on Palmai.com. So welcome, Cameron. Have you recovered from Telluride? I have, and <laughs> it was a great trip. I'm glad we were able to do it together. We had a great time. We saw some great movies and some great Q&As and got to chat with some actors. It was a very eventful and, and a fun vacation. Yeah. So just just for the uninitiated, those who are not in the industry, give us a context for the bigger movie festivals, the bigger film festivals in general, and Telluride particularly. Well, Telluride is one of the most prestigious. It's been going on, I think, for about 46 years in Telluride, Colorado. It's one of several prestigious festivals that come up in the fall. I would say Toronto is the biggest uh, there's also the Venice Film Festival, and they essentially function as a way for filmmakers to bring their films in front of the industry. In many instances, they're doing that because they want their films to be bought. These are independently produced films, and they are searching for a buyer, searching for a distributor. That's not so much the case at Telluride, which prides itself on showing about 35 or 40 or 45 of the very best feature films uh, that will be released in the fall. And almost all of those have buyers or are already purchased going into the festival. It's just a way of sharing with cinephiles and sharing with the industry what you've accomplished and building support sort of from the, the grassroots level instead of just throwing out a film in a single general release. To what extent do you think that showing your work to your peers actually cultivates tastes, affects taste, affects the kinds of films that are made and that eventually that we see the general public? It's important. I think it's a, a little bit of groupthink, perhaps, because if you're showing your films that have already been accepted into a festival to your peers, I think there's a lot of 
self-congratulatory type behavior that occurs. I mean, that's that's one thing that happens at a film festival. But I also think it inspires filmmakers to look at other work and to expand their thinking and to drive themselves to greater heights culturally, thematically, content-wise. It's just it's just a great way of sharing cinema. Okay, so let's get into what we saw. Top of my list, as you know, my very, very favorite, I'm not sure if it's still yours, was The Two Popes, the Netflix production with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price as Pope Benedict and um, Pope Francis. Is that still tops of your list? Or Well, it is. I should add that as at all film festivals, we weren't able to see nearly the amount of films that we had hoped. You have to sleep, you have to eat, you have to stand in line, you have to get from one side of the town to the other. So it's very difficult to hit everything on your checklist. But for me, The Two Popes and Marriage Story and Ford versus Ferrari were my three favorites. As it happens in our discussion about movie dialects, those three films aren't necessarily packed with dialects and accents, but just from a film appreciation standpoint, those were my three favorites, with two popes, again, probably being at the top. Now, as you know, I had the uh, good fortune and great pleasure of of riding the gondola up the ski lift with the two top people at Netflix, the uh, producers of this fine, fine film, and, and got to later congratulate them on this fine piece. It was interesting to me that they, when they learned that I was a dialect coach, they uh, denied that there was going to be any dialect work in the two popes. But as you and I know, it, the, the dialect work, though subtle, was there. Tell us tell us what you heard in terms of Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins playing those two popes, one a German, one uh, an Argentinian. Dialect work was there, and I think it passed the ultimate test of a film as far as dialect work, which is that it didn't get in the way. You accepted what they were doing. The Two Popes is complicated because it's not just about dialect work. It's about language work. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in The Two Popes, you had not just different accents and dialects, but they launched into several different languages. There was obviously Italian spoken. There was a little bit of Latin. And mm-hmm. of course, we'll forgive almost any accent work on Latin since it's officially a dead language. We're not critiquing the dialect of Latin, but we are critiquing their dialect of of Italian and I believe German and certainly English because I would say that about 50% or more of the film is in English. So it's just a very complicated film to combine all of these languages and to sort of suspend your disbelief at certain times because – There might be times in the film when it would be more realistic for them to be speaking Italian together, but they are speaking English. For us. For us. For us. But then they will launch into a little bit of Italian or, uh, or Latin or. Did Jonathan Price, uh, as as Pope Francis, speak some Spanish? I'm sure he did. Oh, of course. I'm forgetting Spanish. Yes. Because with his background and especially in the flashbacks that weren't performed by Jonathan Price, but a different actor, younger actor. Yes. There was there was certainly Spanish being spoken. So the flashbacks are almost entirely in Spanish, I believe. Yes. But um, it's just a, it's a great complicated mix and I think I think they nailed it. I think they did yeah. a really good job. And and even back in Argentina when Fr- when Pope Francis was a 
a much younger man. Isn't it interesting that I don't remember if we heard Spanish with English subtitles or whether they actually used English? Isn't that a great tribute to the film? It is. It is. There was certainly a lot of subtitling in the film. But looking back now, after having seen it only once, I don't recall what they chose to subtitle, what they chose to just put in English. Uh, my recollection is a lot of that flashback material set in Argentina was in Spanish. But I could be wrong. I need to see it again. Really worthwhile films. So we'll be uh, able to go to uh, MeyerMovies.com and read your reviews in depth of some of these films, right? You can, yes. And my reviews will be in the Orlando Weekly as well. Uh, and they'll be coming out more as the films are released in a general release around the country. And lots of your reviews can be picked up on Rotten Tomatoes, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I still can't get used to saying tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> uh, rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> All right, so that's a kind of a quick and dirty roundup of the Telluride experience, which was great. So let's move on to movie dialects in general. Um, as we were compiling our little bit of a list of 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 movies to share clips with, uh, demonstrating the different aspects of dialect work, dialect work in the movies. Uh, you came up with um, films that, having this in common, that the actors should all be presumed to be speaking, not in English, though they, though, and it's a, a, a cinematic convenience that we hear them in English. You mentioned Judgment at Nuremberg, which, of course. Most most of what was spoken there should be presumed to be spoken in German. Hunt for Red October, which again is Russian. Yes. And Chocolat, French. We hear them in English. What did the movie makers choose to do? Judgment at Nuremberg and Hunt for Red October, what did they choose to do and why, in your opinion? I think in those films, they chose to make it easy for the audience. They didn't want to produce a subtitled film. But they had a great little trick of of switching. I don't know what else to call it. They made it very plain to you early on that these characters were not speaking English, but they flipped it. So we're hearing them in English, but we have no no idea that the filmmakers have gotten it wrong. It just allows us to sit back and relate to these characters in a cultural way. It's a neat little trick. It's been a long time since I've seen some of these films, but I think in Judgment at Nuremberg, we're meant to believe, of course, that they're speaking German, but suddenly it switches, and, oh, we're in English, and this is just fine. And the same with Hunt for Red October. I think the Sean Connery character, if I'm not wrong, is supposed to be speaking Russian, but suddenly it switches, and it works just fine. It's a it's a neat little trick. And you know Shock a lot much better than I do, because yeah, I think that's it. one of your, your favorite films. Indeed, and the, I have to would have to compliment the dialect work just to the skies on that one because um there was nothing of the of the of the cliche French accent. There was just the vaguest impressionistic hint from Judy Dench and her wonderful wonderful co-stars just a wonderful little hint that we were not somewhere in england and and it served it served it very well i love those little hints when you know that what you're hearing isn't meant to be completely realistic but it puts you in the mind of the realism 
And I would agree that those three films um, did that quite well. Um, so, as do as do animated films. I think there's not as much pressure with animated films to be a hundred percent realistic, so they get to experiment with dialects and accents that put you in the mood of the characters, but aren't necessarily meant to be realistic. You chose uh, a clip from Pinocchio. Let's listen to that now, and, you, and then you can tell me what we've heard. <laughs> Bravo, Pinocchio! They like me. Two mm, hundred. You are sensational. You mean I'm good? Ah, 300. You are closer. Does that mean I'm an actor? Sure. I would push you in the public eye. Your face, she would be on everybody's tongue. Will she? So that's Pinocchio. When was that released? Pinocchio was released in 1940. It was one of that original batch of five Disney masterpieces that came out in about a four or five year period along with Snow White and Dumbo and Fantasia and Bambi. And I think Disney needs a lot of credit for the performance work, the the, the, the voiceover work in those early films. As I said before, I think with animated films, you don't have an expectation of 100% realism, so you can get a little bit creative with your accents. Pinocchio also uses that old Hollywood technique of making your lead character American. Yep, one of us, one of us, as it were. <laughs> yes, but if there are other other characters that are evil or strange or just a little bit different, let's give them a foreign language accent or let's give them a British accent. And <laughs> particularly I, I think, if they're particularly if they're evil, which I resent. <laughs> <laughs> and in live action films, looking back at films from the 30s or 40s, that can seem a little bit ridiculous now. There's a way to do that and there's a way not to do that. But I think in animated films, it somehow works. And in the clip we heard from Pinocchio, we hear Pinocchio speaking in an American dialect. He's just a little American boy. But you hear Stromboli with an absolutely outrageously exaggerated Italian accent. Exactly. Which is fitting the story. There are other characters in Pinocchio that have an Italian accent. Yeah. But there are other characters that have American accents or slightly English dialects. And it works just fine. It establishes those characters. It's a sort of acoustic equivalent of the animator's pen, isn't it? It is, I think. It's, it's necessary to establish characters. When you have lots of characters in an animated film, especially if they're not drawn particularly well, and we've both seen this, you tend to get lost. You can't differentiate character from character. And with the quality of animation in those early Disney films and the quality of the voice work, you know exactly who is on screen at, at every moment. You know those characters. You can close your eyes. You almost can. Another animated film, which is a huge favorite with both of us, you introduced me to it, was and I don't think so many people have seen this for some reason. Loving Vincent, what an amazing piece. Talk about that, not just for dialect, but as a masterpiece in its own right. Oh, I think it's absolutely a masterpiece. I think it's probably the greatest animated film to come out in the last 20 years. Perhaps the greatest non-Disney animated film. It was, or it is a film that 
based on the life of Vincent van Gogh or specifically the death of Vincent van Gogh. It's almost a little bit of a murder mystery and it's told by the characters in his paintings, mm-hmm. which is just an astonishing tool that they use and even more astonishing than than the, the tool to tell the story of van Gogh is the fact that they painted this by hand. It's the first it's the first fully oil painted feature film. And how many animators painted this film? Oh, well over a hundred over about a five or six year period. <laughs> and it just looks beautiful. And I think the voice work is excellent. Yeah. And it is a great example of an animated film using accents and dialects that aren't realistic but fit the characters. Yeah, tell us about the dialect palette. Well, it has a lot in common with those other films we mentioned, uh, Hunt for Red October, Judgment at Nuremberg, Chocolat, because what the characters are really speaking, of course, is French. Even Vincent van Gogh, who was Dutch, in the context of the film, would be speaking French. But what they do with the characters is they give them all British or maybe Irish dialects of English. Provincial dialects, yes. Yes, except for Vincent van Gogh, who gets a foreign language accent. Yes. So they use the trick of sort of describing the characters through these unique British dialects and singling out van Gogh himself, who is a foreigner. And they make reference to that. He is the foreigner. He is different. So he gets something that is more akin to a Dutch accent of English, I suppose. Yeah. It uh, reminds me of, of what we usually do in the theatre. If we're playing Chekhov or Ibsen, we don't give them Scandinavian or, or Russian accents, but often the dialect palette is in the, the country of production. If you're in Australia or, and, or Canada or the United States, then the dialect palette is translated in, into the home language because English is what we're using. We don't want to indicate that those characters are speaking English and doing so poorly. They're speaking uh, Russian or German or whatever, or, 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 or Swedish or whatever, superbly. They're masters of their own language. So why would they, why would they stumble and, and halt over pronunciation? Yes, that's a good point. Okay. Now, many of our listeners have tuned in to see which ones we're going to castigate for their bad dialect voice. So let's let's get that over with. All right. Okay. At the top of your list, go. Well, we've transitioned now from films that don't necessarily need to get the dialect or accent right to films that do. And I think that's an important way to preface this part of the discussion. There are films including films from the 1930s and 40s where they didn't care as much about this that need to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I think at the very top of my list are some films from the 30s and 40s. And one that comes to mind is How Green Was My Valley with poor old Walter Pigeon. (laughs) Now, this is an Oscar-winning film, and I realize there's an expectation in the 1940s that the dialect work is not going to be perfect. That's That just wasn't the expectation then. But it is impossible for me to fully enjoy this film when almost everybody else in the film is at least attempting 
something close to a Welsh or an English or an Irish. You know, they're all getting it a little bit wrong. They're in the they're, but, in, the, they're in the right latitude of the globe. <laughs> they're of. on the right they're on the right continent. <laughs> and here comes Walter Pigeon, who I guess just didn't even want to try, and he is just full blown American. <laughs> and I could never get comfortable with him. And his perhaps car- because. Perhaps, perhaps because he's not a terribly good actor to begin with. Sorry, Walter. And tell us what characters he play. Not a visitor from, from beyond the ocean. Oh, no. He's a native of the village. Yeah. Yeah, he's a native of the village. Here's a clip. And by prayer, I don't mean shouting and mumbling and wallowing like a hog in religious sentiment. Prayer is only another name for good, clean, direct thinking. When you pray... Think. Think well what you're saying. Make your thoughts things that are solid. And that way your prayer will have strength. And that strength will become a part of you, body, mind, and spirit. And the first duty of these new lakes is to get you to chapel on Sunday. Okay, listeners, that's our that's top of our movies to castigate for dialect work. And I suppose if that didn't bother you, then you can enjoy the film because it's not like he's getting a dialect wrong. He's simply choosing not to do it. And that's a difference. There's a difference between trying and getting it very badly wrong and just not trying at all. And I don't know which is worse. So why is Casablanca up there with you on this same topic? Well, Casablanca is slightly different because when I started thinking about how green was my valley, I thought about Casablanca. And the first Fifteen times I saw Casablanca, I didn't think about Claude Rains because he is such an amazing actor and the film is so wonderful. And his character? Well, his character is a police officer, a French police officer in a French-influenced, French-controlled Casablanca. So he is French. He should have a French accent. Other characters have their correct dialects. The other dialect work in the in the film is is wonderful. German dialects or German accents, I should say. Rick, of course, Humphrey Bogart is American. And the language, the, the lingua franca of that milieu, of course, is English. Yes, it's everything else is completely realistic. They would be speaking English in Rick's American cafe. They would be speaking in uh, a dialect or accent of English. And for some reason, Claude Rains is RP, completely RP, upper crust English, without a hint of a French sound. It almost works, and I'm surprised, because if you think about it too much, it doesn't work. But maybe this is one instance where you should just relax and accept the fact that maybe he was very well educated and had done everything he could to suppress his French accent when speaking English. And that is one explanation for it. I similarly rationalized the Russian ambassador in Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Love the Bomb. The Russian ambassador that we meet in the war room has no real Russian accent at all. But I rationalized that as that an ambassador to the United States from Moscow might be chosen not only because he can speak English very well, but might have spent his formative years in the West and therefore uh, is, can, can speak on equal terms, not as a halting, hesitant foreigner, but on equal terms with, with the Americans. So maybe it's, 
it's it's amazing how our mind starts to rationalize what we hear, isn't it? It is, and I would agree with you about the Doctor Strangelove character. That's not the point of the character, and I, and the character does adopt a physical and vocal quality that suggests Russian, but there really is no hint of a Russian accent, and I don't think it's necessarily important. He does speak a little bit of Russian, though, remember, on the yes. phone? Yes. Uh, you wanted to mention uh, your very, very favorite film. Are we talking about Gone with the Wind? You got it. Well, in contrast to Casablanca, Gone with the Wind gets it mostly right with dialects. There are so many films from the 30s and 40s that do not, but I was just thinking about how even in Gone with the Wind, David Selznick chose to really work with Vivian Lee to get her dialect right because of the expectation of Scarlet. That character just had to be perfect. Oh, if it was a, Every A-lister in Hollywood wanted that role and was up for it, right? Yes, especially Southern actresses and Southern women. If I think if the Southerners specifically had heard a British actress not get that dialect right, that could have partially doomed the film. So, <laughs> so they concentrated. If Vivian Lee had done a Dick Van Dyke, you mean? Oh, <laughs> Yes. So Selznick wanted to get that perfect. And with the other characters who are born and raised and and, and never left that part of Georgia, I think the accents are, are quite good. With Leslie Howard, he sounds a little bit too English, but, you know, that's okay. If you listen to Leslie Howard's real dialect and then listen to what he was doing in Gone with the Wind, I think you'll appreciate that he did some dialect work there. And his family is English originally. So Perhaps some of that would survive, have survived. And then Rhett Butler, you know, he's a man of the world. Um, he'd been to London and Paris. And that combined with the fact that Clark Gable apparently wasn't crazy about doing a southern accent, I think, makes it passable. But again, these conversations about films from the 30s and 40s, I think, need to be, needs to be in the context of the 1930s and 40s. So, and, so contextualize those. Why, um, why were films made hewing to a completely different sensibility than 80 years ago? Well, I think there are three or four different reasons. I struggle with that. I don't think anybody has the answer for that difference. I think some of it might stem from the silent film tradition. We have to remember when Casablanca was made in 1943, I think, sound films had been around for only about 16 years. So film developed visually and people demanded visual realism or at least visual naturalism but when the talkies came along you'd been coasting on this tradition of not having to have any dialect or accent work for you know 15 20 years for the history of motion pictures so i think it just took a lot longer for people to think oh we now have to go back to the theater where this tradition started which we abandoned because of the visual style of cinema. We've got to go back to the theater and really take a closer look at dialects and accents. And we do have to remember, don't we, that the world was a collection of separate places. It wasn't the global village that it is today, and actors didn't have instant access to the idea archive. 
which was, you know, the main reason I started it was because I'd grown up on a tradition that, that actors learned accents from other actors who would, had done this or that dialect in this or that movie. And so there was a sort of incestuous, uh, self-referencing tradition. And by the time I came along and started work as a dialect coach, um, that was, that was no longer good enough, we thought. And, and, and life should be our, our model. And it was so, with the internet, it became so easy to, to use life as our model. And which is, which is why idea, you know, has, has a million visitors a year from actors, mainly perhaps, who yes. want to hear how the real thing sounds. Yes, that's right. Maybe we shouldn't be too harsh on the thirties and forties. Ultimately, if it pulls you out of the film dramatically, then it's done something wrong. Yes. The second idea that I was going to mention was the idea of romantic naturalism, which was the dominant style of movies then, not realism. So when you have romantic naturalism, you don't insist that everything is hyper-realistic or realistic. This is pre-method acting. Mm -hmm. So when method acting came into uh, its own in the 50s, I suppose, Mm -hmm. in film, late 40s, very late 40s, early 50s, you had more of an emphasis on realism of performance. And it's just a different style. And then the third thing I would mention is we can't transpose our cultural values now onto people in the 30s and 40s. I think the fact that we have maybe a little bit more respect for diversity of culture now demands that we get more of these dialects and accents correct, at least if the film is trying to be realistic. And that might account for some of the total disregard for dialect and accent work then. Exactly. Okay. So now we have to hear poor Dick Van Dyke. I wanted to put Dick Van Dyke in as as Bert, the the chimney sweep in Mary Poppins, uh, mainly because he's so often, poor guy, cited as the as the movie's worst example of a dialect. And I want to defend the guy, but let's let's hear him from this little little clip and then perhaps we can we can redeem his his reputation a little bit look at it this way you've got your mother to look after you and mary poppins and constable jones and me who looks after your father tell me that when something terrible happens what does he do fence for himself he does who does he tell about it no one don't blab his troubles at home he just pushes on at his job, uncomplaining and alone and silent. So clearly it's a very bad Cockney accent. <laughs> a very bad one indeed. Uh, you know, some of the signature sounds are, are simply are simply wrong. But in his defence, uh, I, I would like to cite Dick Van Dyke as Bert the Chimney Sweep as an example of where the actor's personal charm and his, his, his acting strength dictates the criteria by which we judge him. We judge his Bert. And his Bert is done by Dick Van Dyke, American sweetheart. And, you know, it it doesn't take me out. It's just Dick Van Dyke doing a turn and uh Yes. And doing do it with such commitment and enthusiasm that uh, I I think I would nominate him for an Oscar for enthusiasm. <laughs> I agree. Listening to it again it's so embedded in our culture now that eh, it's just, it's almost like the Dick Van Dyke brand of Cockney. <laughs> exactly. He made it his own, we would say. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, he came from a different neighborhood of London that, 
you know, I, I don't know how to rationalize it. But I will say this. I still think, even with the flaws, that it's better that he attempted it. If he had walked into that film with everybody else yeah. speaking English dialects and done nothing. Yeah, if he'd done a Walter Pigeon number, right? It's still better than Walter Pigeon. It still didn't take me out of the story from a cultural standpoint. Right, I mean, and the fact the fact that it's a fantasy musical yes. also might make a little bit of difference. It's not some sort of hard-hitting realistic drama. It's a fantasy. Right. And we've got dancing penguins and stuff, right? Yes, and their accent is impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> now going to the other end of the spectrum, it's hard to cite um the very best dialect work, but Meryl Streep's name often, nearly always comes up when people are searching for the best dialect actor in the world. Let's listen to a clip from her amazing turn as Iron Lady. You know, when I think of Maggie Thatcher now, I no longer recall Margaret Thatcher's face. I recall Meryl Streep, who who came to resemble her. She's, she's my standard for what Maggie Thatcher is. And it was just an amazing, not only a, a, an accent, but a, uh, an impersonation. Yes. Let's, let's listen. 1941, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, did America go cap in hand and ask Tojo for a peaceful negotiation of terms? Did she turn her back on her own citizens there because the islands were thousands of miles away from the mainland United States? No, no, no. We will stand on principle. Or we will not stand at all. Did she ever do a better job in dialects in, in, her, oh, in her long career? She's wonderful in everything. I simply have no criticism of any of her performances, except um, maybe Mamma Mia, but that's for different reasons. <laughs> I, I love Meryl Streep. She always does a wonderful job. And uh, she uses life as her model. I, 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 I'm not privy to her technique, but I feel sure that she has... Heard native speakers and borrowed from the different native speakers that she's heard and, and it, it's impeccable. I cannot ever fault it. Her, and she had the nerve to take the leading role in dancing at Lunasa with a, with a cast of Irish and Brit actors joining, mm. joining that, that family. Yeah. She will attempt almost anything. And she obviously does her homework and is passionate about it and gets it right just about every time. Uh, we also wanted to do, uh, talk about Peter Sellers. Yes. Maybe we should also think of him in the same breath as Alec Guinness, who once or twice did virtuoso turns playing more than one character in the same piece. Yes. Strange Love, the clip you're going to hear has him playing three roles. Uh, from Strange Love, whereas in fact he played a total of he played three. He played the president Merkin Muffley. He played the British officer Mandrake, and he played Doctor Strange Love. But what you're thinking is he was going to play a fourth. He was going to play the pilot Slim Pickens, the, <laughs> the Slim Pickens role. But as you might remember, he broke his leg and could not climb up into the cockpit. So Stanley Kubrick said, well, I guess we're just going to have to limit you to three roles. <laughs> <laughs> kind Hearts and Coronets, though, how many roles did... Uh... Oh, how many roles did Alec Guinness play? Yes. He played every member of the family. I can't remember how many. Of course, not all requiring different accents and dialects. So that's not an accent trick. 
that uh, such as Peter Sellers was doing. It's just more of a performance trick. Let's listen to this clip from Strange Love. Mr. President, I would not rule out the chance to preserve a nucleus of human specimens. It would be quite easy. <laughs> At the bottom of uh, some of our deeper mine shafts, radioactivity would never penetrate a mine some thousands of feet deep. And in a matter of weeks, sufficient improvements in dwelling space could easily be provided. Hello? Uh, hello, De- hello, Dimitri. Listen, I-, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, oh that's much better. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. (laughs) You want to talk to the President of the United States? I don't want to talk to him, Colonel. I've got to talk to him. And I can assure you, if you don't put that gun away and stop this stupid nonsense, the Court of Inquiry on this will give you such a pranging, you'll be lucky if you end up wearing the uniform of a bloody toilet attendant. He's a wonderful voice actor, wonderful actor. And, and I, th- I think he pioneered the use of dialects and accents. He just loved that, and he could do almost everything. So let's end up today with a little discussion of historical dialects, dead dialects, we might call them. As everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I'm a huge fan of the original pronunciation of Shakespeare, OP, original pronunciation, and have done several productions with David Crystal's help, who's going to be our guest next month, by the way, in dredging up from the grave the original pronunciation as spoken in 1600. But we face this all the time. We we have plays and films set back when and over there and back when uh, Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, who was sort of ties for second place, I think, with, with uh, Walter Pidgeon and Dick Van Dyke. Let's talk about the difficulties and conventions uh, and aesthetics of representing historical speech. First of all, I'm surprised that more films don't explore other languages, dead languages, dead dialects, because there is such an emphasis on realism in film now, and the average American moviegoer is comfortable with subtitles. So it's just a mystery why they don't do more exploration of that. Particularly interesting because... The Robin Hood stories and the King Arthur stories keep coming up in remakes and reboots and sequels, and nobody seems to want to attempt Robin Hood in Middle English, and and why not? Or King Arthur in in Old English, or what is it, Common Britonic, I think is the name of the language that predates English itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be wonderful if we could get a reinterpretation of those stories with actors attempting to speak like those characters really spoke. Yes, and if we if we attempt Klingon, why not that? <laughs> True. Uh, I'll just leave that comment there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I mean, but yeah, mo- I, I mo- guess there aren't a, movie makers aren't go to gr- movie makers go to great lengths to invent languages and to to coach the actors in that in that imagined language. So it's it surely must be 
somewhat easier to do as you suggest. Yes, and I was just going to say that if there were more fans, if there were just as many fans of Common Britannic as there were of Star Trek, then we wouldn't be having this discussion. But I think they're ultimately worried that it wouldn't mean good box office. Oh, we're going to give you a film in a language you don't know when everybody else has told you that Robin Hood is speaking in an upper class British accent from the 19th century. It just it, it's, <laughs> it's confusing to moviegoers. But I think we started this discussion originally, you and I, when talking about Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because he was so criticized for that. But at the end of the day, he's not going to be speaking in any sort of dialect or even a language that we understand. So it seemed a little bit silly to me when that film came out for him to be so heavily criticized for his lack of any attempt to do an English dialect. Let's just quickly listen to 15 seconds of Kevin Costner's Robin Hood. You wish to end this? You wish to go home? Then we must stop fighting amongst ourselves and face it the price where it may be dear. I, for one, would rather die than to spend my life in hiding. The sheriff calls us outlaws. But I say we are free. And one free man defending his home is more powerful than ten hired soldiers. So... There, there you have it. And maybe the criticism lies in the fact that others in the film do English accents. So it doesn't fit into the world of the play. Exactly. It goes back to what we were talking about before. It doesn't work from a dramatic and storytelling standpoint. Forget realism. It just doesn't work dramatically. Right. And ultimately, our discussion of dialects is 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 not driven primarily by our obsession for verisimilitude it's it's driven by our desire to be great storytellers and if an accent and a dialect assists you in telling a story with more clarity then terrific if it if it obscures the story if it if it obfuscates the narrative then it's done wrong it's just applied wrongly yes it reminds me of something that I believe David Fincher said to somebody when a, there was a discussion about his film The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which has some amazing, not just dialect work, but production uh, design. And there was a bridge, I think, in New Orleans that features in the film. And if you want to be really strict about it, that bridge wasn't built until a few years after the events of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But they get so much else right. And when somebody commented to David Fincher, hey, you know we got the bridge wrong, I believe David Fincher said, hey, you know this is just a movie. (laughs) We're not really traveling back in time. It's ultimately a movie. Yes. Yes. I'll let you in on a secret. It's a movie. (laughs) And that's a good place to stop. It's a movie. Yes. Thanks, Cameron. You're welcome. This was a pleasure. And thanks to you for joining Cameron Meyer and me, Paul Meyer. The fair use audio clips you heard in this month's podcast are as follows. Pinocchio and Mary Poppins are copyright the Walt Disney Company. How Green Was My Valley is copyright 20th Century Fox. Casablanca is copyright Warner Brothers. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is copyright Warner Brothers and Morgan Creek Entertainment. The Iron Lady is copyright DJ Films, Film 4, and The Weinstein Company. 
and Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, is copyright Columbia Pictures and Hawk Films. Join me next time when my guest will be the celebrated linguist, David Crystal. He's been my guest once before. Pragmatics was our topic back in episode number five. He and I will talk this time about what may be the longest-running prestige dialect in the history of the English language. Received pronunciation. RP. You know it from every BBC costume drama you've ever seen. How and when did it get started? What ensured its perpetuation almost unchanged for over 200 years? We will also talk about the dialects that are threatening it. Cockney. Estuary. And the new kid on the block, Multicultural London English, MLE. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>